Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, before I get started, uh, I will claim that uh, promise from Jesus in Acts 1 that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and uh, we shall be witnesses. I claim that now for all of us in these moments as we together look at God's Word. Uh, today's sermon is on the statement in the Apostles' Creed, that phrase, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now before I jump in, I wanted to keep my word regarding sharing a little piece of Apostles' Creed history with you each time I get up here. It's important that we look at history, especially of this, the oldest of creeds for Christianity. In my first sermon in this uh, series, I mentioned how the creed, as we have it today, was pretty much settled by the 5th century A.D. And in the second sermon I did in this series, I shared with you all how these section, there were sections or pieces of the creed being used as early as the 2nd century A.D. And I actually read um, a part of a treatise by the early church father Arrhenius in his treatise Against Heresies. And uh, what Irenaeus wrote was amazingly close to what we say now in the Creed. Early on, as the ideas of the Creed were being used between the 2nd and 5th centuries, the Creed was sometimes called in Latin the Symbolum Apostolicum, or sometimes the Symbolum Apostolorum. That's about all the Latin I'm going to share with you this morning. But... Uh, interesting word that was called basically the symbol of the Trinity or the symbol of the Apostles. Again, nice little piece of history. Uh, you can look that up yourselves if you're interested in going deeper. Uh, remember from what I have said in previous sermons that we are connecting the dots of our beliefs as followers of Jesus in this series about the Apostles' Creed. Perhaps you have seen by now how each phrase reasonably follows the next one. Uh, for the last few sermons, we've been looking at uh, the case for Christ, so to speak, via the creed. That if each one of these phrases is true, then the conclusions that we draw must also be reasonable and true. I realized this week that this particular statement, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that we're looking at this morning, is the last one about Jesus in the creed. It is also the, the last in the first section regarding beliefs about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From here to the end of the Creed, we have the list of reasonable conclusions given, if, given the first section's veracity. If these things are true, then these follow. He will come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the big seat church. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. These are all going to be addressed in the coming weeks, and I look forward to that as uh, we hear from Buzzy, Brett, and Fred. Uh, but I will tell you this right now, brothers and sisters, none of these statements in the latter half of the Apostles' Creed, none of those sermons that we have heard coming from this pul pulpit about them, none of their meaning, none of their, tr uh, none of the, not the, the fact that they're true or not, matters doesn't matter any more than any animal dung we could find on this farm if we don't think this first section is in fact true. This is epitomized in this exact line 
and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus just doesn't sit there. If any previous stuff that we say are made-up lies, exaggerated manipulations spread by devils or maniacs. If these are not true, why not believe that animal dung on this farm is any more valuable or less valuable than us? Paul writes here in Ephesians, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If Jesus isn't sitting at the right hand of God the Father, then let's all just break now, divide up into our various belief groups, arm ourselves, and get down to what is actually real. Whoever comes out on the bloody other end of that, I guess we could call a winner, but exactly a winner of what? Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the resurrected one, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. What exactly does that mean? I will do two things this morning. One, try to explain what this phrase of sitting at the right hand means, and two, draw applications or implications of this truth. So what does sitteth at the right hand mean? As I was contemplating this phrase from the Apostles' Creed, I realized that we as Westerners, particularly as Americans, might have a hard time understanding this concept of sitting at the right hand. The reason we may have a hard time is because we, uh, because we have instituted a culture that does not mark or respect monarchs. We have no king. And though we have in our current culture elevated the office of President of the United States to the place of monarch in some ways, we are still a culture where monarchical concepts may be harder to understand. Because this place of seating Jesus at God's right hand can only be correctly understood if we understand the position, place, and symbolism in royal systems. There is no throne in America, there is an office, which in itself, if you haven't thought about it, goes contrary to thousands and thousands of years of human history. Have you thought about that? The fact that we don't have a throne, we have an office. And since there is no throne but a room, it is hard to understand the idea of exactly what someone sitting at the right hand means. No, it's not a conservative concept, sitting on the right. It is a kingly concept. And in order to try to wrap our U.S. Western minds around this idea, I thought I might speak historically to what the meaning of the right hand is and then try to share what I think those examples by examples to get a better understanding. Let's start with the actual thing. Let's start with the hand. The hand is an incredible appendage, made even more incredible when we think about how it's used historically. The hand, practically speaking, is used to eat, it's used to write, it's used to make peace or war. We use them to stop or guide somebody along. We use them to scratch an itch or even pick our noses, but they help us in exercising. They help us in repairing things. Hands are used to show affection, even disdain. There's a symbolic difference between a slap and a punch. Most of the world is right-handed. 
this may be even historically true as they've, uh, archaeologists have uh, been able to surmise in the ancient cave drawings, the oldest drawings, if they were painted with left or right hands. Hands are also used as symbols in literature and even comic books. In The Lord of the Rings, what was the symbol of, of the white wizard Saruman's army after he betrayed men and marched against them? It was a white hand. Remember the white hand on the, on the uh, helmets? When I was in high school and I collected co uh, comic books, my favorite superhero was Daredevil, and he had an organization that stood against him. It was a society of ninjas called simply The Hand. <laughs> I understand that he eventually defeated them and became their leader, but this happened after I stopped collecting comic books. The Hand could be the appendage most used in human history with regards to communicating symbolism. You look in Hinduism, Christianity, Buddhism, when you look at the frescoes and the statues of these religions, the way the hand is used and symbol is a first indication of what is going on in the image. Think about it. The way the hand is held in images, is it pointing which direction? Where is it being positioned? Are the fingers being placed together? There's, there's symbolic things. Is it caressing a cheek or a face? Is it being held up in some forceful manner? Some of our own paintings from the early days of this country has portraits of leaning against books or some sort of having their hand on books, usually the Bible. That's symbolic, the hand being used. We even use it in modern day, uh, my wife said gang signs are a symbol. The way they hold the hands is a symbol of what gang you're in. I remember when I lived in New York City, my artist friends noted that an exhibit of Fra, Fra Angelico was coming to town. Fra Angelico was a 15th century Italian painter of the early Renaissance. I remember particularly how my friend painter Mako Fujimura oohed and odd over Fra Angelico's paintings of the human hand. I remember thinking at the time, how big a deal can painted hands be? And then I went to the exhibit at the Met, and the paintings were wonderful. And I have to admit, the way he painted the human hand is pretty visually distinct. Hands are important. When Jesus is portrayed in frescoes, he is sometimes holding his hands in the letters of A and O. And do you know what that means? It means Alpha and Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet and how God describes himself in the scriptures as the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And this, of course, harkens to the fact that we have a whole language dependent on the use of hands called sign language. And there are different types of sign language. But what of the royal meaning of the right and the left? Because symbolism is evident in royal culture and especially the regalia. There are crowns, robes, rings, staves or scepters, orbs, jewels, thrones, deuses, stairs, and more. And they all have meaning. 
And this imagery isn't foreign to the Bible, this royal imagery. Just look in the book of Exodus at uh, the description God gives for how he wants his tabernacle built. The tabernacle is God's throne room here on earth. The Israelites carried it around. They put it in the center of their encampment because God was king. So if you want to look at some of the symbolism of what God chooses to have in his throne room, the holy place and the holy of holies, you look at things like candle holders that look like trees or cherubim that are sitting over the mercy seat all symbolizing some aspect of God's character and holiness. And it seems that the right hand has a more consistent meaning than the left, though both have positive meanings. Uh, The left, though, if you look at it, has a negative meaning, which is why, in our history, any kid that was seen as left-handed was, that's the hand of the devil. It's not true. But symbolically, if you were left-handed, you were seen as weird. Why? Because most of the world is right-handed. The right hand was seen as the place of authority, the right hand of a king. It was seen as the position of action of the king. This could be because the right hand was used as the weapon hand. It was the one that the sword was drawn and used. The shield was used in the left. It was seen as passive. The right hand was seen as active. To hold out a weaponless right hand was a sign of peace. In the church, we say, greet with the right hand of fellowship. Whenever, when I was growing up, and we sometimes do that, if someone was becoming, became a member, you were invited by the uh, leaders and pastors to come up and extend the right hand of fellowship to those that just joined the church. And that's based on Galatians 2.9, where Paul says, the apostles extended their right hands to he and Barnabas as a sign of the acceptance of their ministry. For a king or emperor to choose someone to be on the right hand was a huge honor. If one was at the king's right hand, you were seen as the most trusted person in the kingdom. In the Bible, we see the equivalent of this in Genesis with the story of Joseph. Chapter 41, 38 through 44. This is what Pharaoh said to Joseph after interpreting Pharaoh's dream. You remember Pharaoh's dream? He had... uh, Dreams about cows and then wheat sheaves, and one was eating, groups were eating up another, and God gave the revelation of the dream to Joseph. He shared that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is utterly astonished, and he says this, said to his servants, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. I imagine it was the right hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot the one right behind him. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Now, there's no mention of a right hand here, but I imagine the right hand was the one used for the ring. But this gives us an idea of what a person received when trusted completely by a king, a person whom would be at the right hand. Joseph was the right hand of Pharaoh. And you see that in the rest of that story. He had control over all the kingdom. The only person that was more important to him was Pharaoh. In the Bible, the right hand was also significant. People were blessed with the right hand. Jacob, in Genesis 48, crosses his hands to bless Ephraim, the younger brother, over the older brother, Manasseh. Joseph got ticked. No, no, no. Tried to move his hand. I want you to bless the older son, Dad. No, no, no. I'm blessing the younger. He took his right hand. In Ecclesiastes, wisdom is on the right, foolishness on the left. In the priestly rituals found in Exodus through to the end of Deuteronomy, these these pop up every once in a while. You you come across these moments, and uh, even in the cleansing of a leper, where the right earlobe, the right big, your right thumb, and the right big toe are wiped in blood, the right side. The right hand is a highly honored place. In Psalm 118, 15, and 16, it says, The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand is the hand of power in the Bible. Exodus 15.6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Finally, the right side, the right hand, is a place of judgment as well. Matthew 25.32 and 33 says, And he, Jesus, will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. A particularly uncomfortable verse to me. And here, in the Apostles' Creed, we have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Immediately, just thinking about what this could symbolically symbolically mean begins to add weight to who Jesus is and what he means to us right here, right now. The right hand means authority. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The right hand means power. In Ephesians 1, 22, he says, Paul says, and he, God, puts all things under Jesus' feet, his feet. And then, of course, we see in Matthew 25, judgment. I won't read, reread that. I can only take so much discomfort. But what I find interesting about this passage in Ephesians is we see the power of Jesus sitting at the right hand connected to the resurrection. God exhibits his great power in resurrecting Jesus from the dead and seating Jesus at the right hand, but it doesn't stop there in this verse. Look at what Paul says in verse 21 as to where this right hand is located. 
Where is it? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. The right hand of Jesus, the right hand that Jesus sits on, is so far above any right hand here on earth, there seems to be no comparison. It just isn't any right hand. It is God's right hand. And God's right hand is in a category by itself. Think about that for a moment. That that is true in this very moment. I mean, look in the passage here. Paul is talking about all these things of what he's praying for for the Ephesians. And he's prayed probably for us, and we pray for each other, I hope. That God would give, him, uh, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would know what the hope is that he's called us. That we would know what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints are. And what the immeasurable greatness of his power of those who believe. Paul's prayer is that for the Ephesians. And it is for us. But it is dependent on something. It's what? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Doesn't stop there. And seated him on the right hand in the heavenly places. All those things, all those wonderful things are available to us. Why? Because of the resurrection. And not only the resurrection, but the denouement, the finale, where he seats him in the place of power. Now I want to go back to how to think about this idea of Jesus at the right hand as a non-monarchical American. I mean, we're, we're Americans. I mean, we, we have a president, we have representatives, we have Supreme Court justices, there's balance of power. There isn't a throne, there's an office, there's a desk, you know. So are there, are, are there parallel concepts that would give weight to understanding Jesus at the right hand? Let me, let me throw some examples uh, with regard to the office of the president, I was thinking about this. About the closest thing I could think of as a right-hand person was was the, the position of chief of staff for the president. You know, that's usually one of the first persons chosen by the president. They usually have that person chosen well before. Why is that? Because he's the chief of the staff of the president. He's the one that makes the final decision of who's chosen to serve the president in his administration. So he's the first advisor on matters. He's someone who oversees the unity and functionality of the president's staff in and out of the White House. That's a pretty important position. That's about one of the closest right-hand positions I could think of for our president. A military parallel for what a right hand to help us understand as Americans would be on the naval vessel. There's the captain, but then the very next officer is who? The executive officer. That's the second in command. That is the one the captain depends on. If the captain can't be somewhere, it has to be on the bridge. But a decision, a captain's decision needs to be made in some important moment somewhere else on the ship. The executive officer goes and does that. He represents the captain of that ship to go make those decisions. 
you see this in the army as well. There's executive armies, uh, executive officers in the army, but there's also these, this position in the army called first sergeant. And that's the guy who's the sergeant over all the other sergeants who oversee all the, the, uh, the soldiers. Those are right-hand people to the commanders of, of companies. In Star Trek, the next generation, who is it? Number one, Will Riker for Captain Picard. Another example in our culture would be the position, now I didn't watch the series, I did read some of the books early on, on the Game of Thrones series, the king's or queen's hand. That was somebody who acted on behalf of the king or the queen. The last, I, uh, from what I understand, was Tyrion Lannister. Okay, anyway, my little knowledge there. Anyway, but what about us here in Rock Hill? Is there anything that would serve as an example of a right-hand person? I thought maybe spouses, the spousal relationship, the right-hand person, each for the other. You, you, would, you, you trust your spouses. I, I, I trust Sarah implicitly and explicitly. And she would be the first person I would go to for counsel. The last word I would want to hear on things. And I would hope I would be the same in her life. But that, that's a right-hand person. What about if you're, if you're a single person? Think about your closest friend. Who, are, who is your closest friend that you would, uh, you would trust implicitly with your life, and they would trust you? In The Lord of the Rings, this was Samwise Gamgee to Frodo Baggins. That friendship was a close friendship, one of right-hand persons. But that's who the son and the father are to each other in that way. Now let's move to application and implications of this reality. If this is true, this authority that Jesus has at the right hand, and we now have some sense at all of everything that carries with it, what does that mean? What are the consequences? As I was thinking this over the last few weeks, I began to get uncomfortable because I was asking myself, did I really believe that Jesus was on the throne of all existence? Did I really understand the implications of that? And that's where I started to get uncomfortable. The reason I began to get uncomfortable was because I was thinking about... <clears throat> this idea in the context of our current moment in history. I was thinking about this in the context of the great division that is occurring in our country. That division is not just happening in our world and nation, but it's also happening inside the church, among brothers and sisters in churches here in Rock Hill, and even in our church, our church. As I grappled with Jesus at the right hand, some questions came to my mind questions that I've had for myself just as much as for anybody else, which is why I'm uncomfortable, and I began to write them down, and with each one I reminded myself of what is actually real. <clears throat> Let me read them to you. Are you bristling over the current holder of office of the president? Since 2016, has your worry increased or decreased? 
in that bristling. Jesus is at the right hand. Did you turn white or feel your heart drop or lose sleep over the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Do you see it as the end of everything you hold dear? Or did you gleefully chortle at the news thinking now's our chance? Jesus is at the right hand. Are you absolutely convinced Democrats are foaming revolution and civil war in our country and have no doubt of what's going to happen in the next six months or longer? Jesus is at the right hand. Has your fear increased or decreased over the last six months of this pandemic? Has your anger increased or decreased? Have you become more depressed because of it? Are you courting suicidal thoughts? Those have all increased in the last six months. Jesus is at the right hand. Are you absolutely convinced conservatives, the president, and the Republicans are yet again working with the Russians to take this upcoming election? Do you see your vote as useless because of that? Are you sympathetic to the idea of chaos in the election season? Jesus is at the right hand. Are you worried about your immediate or long-term financial future in the aftermath of the coronavirus? Will you have enough money? Will I have a job? We'll be able to keep our home, food, and health. Jesus is at the right hand. Are you afraid the church is being torn apart by the current cultural justice movement? Whether you think it's because people are acting foolishly or they're not acting at all. Either side. Doesn't matter. Jesus is at the right hand. Are you harboring ill feelings or thoughts about a brother and sister in Jesus or a neighbor or a friend? Jesus is at the right hand. Remember that. I'm talking to myself. Why is sitting at the right hand this important? Because, brothers and sisters, it is the gospel. We say this when we recite the Apostles' Creed it is the succinct gospel. 
And Jesus sitting at the right hand is the ultimate consequence and destination of His living the perfect life, dying the atoning death, and rising again from the grave to defeat death. He has authority because He showed Himself to be the exact King that could take that seat. Do you ever wonder why He's seated? A seated king not only means authority, but it also means that he is absolutely sure of his authority. If he was standing, it means he would have to fight. When a king sits, the fight is essentially done. Standing is also a sign of respect. We see that when we ask people to stand for the reading of the word. And we see that when Stephen sees that, the deacon Stephen in Acts, when he's He's about to be killed, and he sees a vision. Jesus is what? Standing. Not because Jesus hasn't finished, but because he's showing respect to Stephen. If we think the gospel is only platitudes meant to be sung to our souls and has no correspondence to actual reality of the truth, rather than seeing the gospel as actually being true and that it corresponds to our reality and our current circumstances, then we need to find the real gospel and abandon this one. This also applies to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If that's just a platitude... Let's cease fooling ourselves and find what is actually real. If it is reality, let's let's then grab it together by faith and walk forward into whatever God has for us. Together we can say, together, regardless of where we are or what we think about things, we can say, I believe Jesus, help my unbelief. Think of that moment when in the Chronicles of Narnia in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, when it said Narnia was always winter and never Christmas. How depressing does that sound? You'd never have anything to look forward to in the winter. Trees are always lifeless, landscape always stark, white, blank, cold, and never Christmas. I mean, that's one of the things about wintertime. If you're from colder climates is you know Christmas is in the middle of that winter. But imagine there's no Christmas. That's the way Narnia is. And it feels a little bit like that right now. But there's another part in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. When it said, Aslan is on the move. Uh, There was something in that phrase that assuaged the bite of the winter cold of Narnia's weather. And this is what it says. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. 
Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in, in the dream it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and, always, and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in in its insides. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by, and Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Do we respond to Jesus in the same way? Does thinking about him on the throne fill you with mysterious horror, like Edmund, or courage, adventure, delight, and thoughts of beauty? For some reason, I've lost the last few pages of my sermon. So I'm going to wing it. So what can we do now practically? There are two things, I think. First, I would suggest that uh, you consider reducing the amount of time if you spend a lot of time on social media. That place in our world is not designed to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Amen. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't there. It doesn't mean that he can't be carried with us there. But by design, that place is meant to divide and diminish. And if you think I sound like some sort of conspiracy theorist, I suggest before the week is out that you watch the documentary, The Social Dilemma. I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I sound, say that. But the ones that say it in that documentary are the actual builders of these things. And they say it. Yes, they sound like conspiracy theorists. But they are the builders of that thing. And they're saying it. So I've begun to cut back on some of that stuff. Even listen to some of their suggestions on that. It is not meant to unite you with us. It is meant to isolate you, find out who you are, and divide you from the rest of the people. And we can't have that here. We can't have that here. We can't have that in the church. Second, replace the actions in social media with actions physically here. Good old-fashioned visiting. I know we haven't gotten the community groups back up again, but maybe they can resurrect in some other form, in smaller, more respectful uh, uh, populations, amounts of people, just because of the, of the moment in history with the coronavirus. Just uh, a couple Saturdays ago, along with uh, Carly and Justin Highland and others, Sarah and I had people over just to hang out on the porch 
and connect. It wasn't content driven. I mean, we weren't there to talk about any of the issues of the day, though content is invited. But the whole idea of it is to be neighbors, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ sitting together with no agenda except to be together in Christ and acknowledge his authority. That's acknowledging his authority on this throne. So I would encourage you all this week to really give some deep thought to where you are placing your dependence of authority. Is it on yourself? Is it on your ideas? Is it on your community? Because if it's any of those, they might be good for a while, but they're not going to last. We need to put our reliance on the authority that lasts forever. And who is that? And he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is a beautiful, beautiful result of our wonderful Lord fulfilling the gospel. And perhaps we should be feeling mysterious horror or courage and adventure together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this time and the opportunity to take a look at this truth of who you are and where you are right now, that you sit there at the right hand of the Father and together, as we stand before here, you, 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 you are talking about us together. You're talking about your love for us. You're talking about your care. Forgive me of my thoughts and my actions towards my brothers and sisters. And help us to see you in that place and to love each other because you are in that place. And, uh, and I can only say this to you and only pray to you because of what you did and because you're on that throne, that you lived the perfect life, you died the atoning death, and you defeated death by rising again. And now you have it all. It's yours. And you have me. Thank you. And pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I got to get to